This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russian troops bogged down, Ukrainian and Russian diplomats meeting. But will anything stop the bloodshed? We'll go in-depth with a man in Ukraine and a woman who has been in touch with soldiers on the front line. Meantime, the humanitarian crisis as thousands of Ukrainians flee their homes. We will go live to Poland. Around here, some of the bars are dumping vodka as a protest against the invasion. But um, careful, because not actually a lot of that booze is coming from Russia. We yeah. make a lot of it here. And uh, the state says it's going to lift the school mask mandate in a couple of weeks. We'll hear from an LAUSD teacher and the parents of two kids who are in the system about their thoughts on that. So bringing everybody up to date on the latest developments in the uh, war going on, even as we speak in Ukraine, uh, there's this huge convoy, uh, Russian soldiers, tanks, that sort of thing, about 15 to 20 miles north of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And intelligence experts here in the U.S. and in Europe are wondering what is next. When is that convoy, if it is, going to move into Kiev? And will that be the, the sort of final push by uh, Vladimir Putin to take that city. Yeah, and that was one of the things that's uh, being suggested that, you know, things have been going so, quote unquote, badly for him and for the Russian troops. They thought they would do this in just a couple of days, take over the country. The resistance from the Ukrainians has been fierce that now they're thinking the military analysts that, OK, Putin's going to throw everything he's got. The rest of these troops, the two thirds of the others that have been on the border, throw them right through. Um, to see if they can just go in there and take Kiev, because they've been obviously going from multiple different angles uh, into the country, but Kiev would be the place where they want to get the seat of government, obviously, and, and take over from there. There were the discussions today in Belarus, uh, the Ukrainian president saying he didn't think those would go anywhere to begin with, um, and so they're saying that they're going to send their people back to the governments to talk. But one thing to note from there, the Ukrainians sent top officials to that, uh, not the president, of course, because yeah. he might have been in danger, but the Russians sent low-level people to even talk at the table. Yeah, and, and we are in a moment going to go to somebody uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but uh, one of the other things that is worth uh, noting is that while there seems to be a, a, a delay, and at least on the part of the Russians' intent to take over Kiev, the capital, the Russians are apparently making more progress in the south of Ukraine, moving up through the uh, Odessa area. Uh, so it's unclear whether or not they are succeeding in at least taking over those areas, even if they are not as yet uh, taking over Kiev. We have with us now uh, Patricia smorhan Havlarishnan uh, with us. Uh, Patricia, I heard you on our air this morning, actually, talking about how it came to that hour where the lights were going out and everybody had to draw the curtains because this was curfew again. Uh, feelings now, I guess, uh, probably middle of the night as we're speaking to you and, and knowing that this convoy of the Russian troops, uh, this larger convoy, is uh, getting closer to, to town, getting closer to, to Kiev. Yes. Yeah, hi. Hi again. What yes, are you, what are you thinking of tonight? To uh, well, you know, I'm 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 in bed, but I'm all dressed um with my my uh, uh well, I'm actually fully dressed so that if the sirens start um <clears throat> the sirens start um, um buzzing then we go down to the we go down to the cellar. Um we we um 
yeah, that's what I'm feeling. But I stay calm. I mean, I have to stay calm. Uh, and um, and Kiev is uh, Kiev is uh, is going to resist. I just spoke to my friends in Kharkiv, as you know, East Ukraine, where there's been two days of fighting. They haven't taken it yet. Um, my friends are so far there has have been safe. Yeah. You know, uh, we mentioned uh, before we got to you that, uh, as we understand it, there is a fairly large convoy uh, of Russian soldiers, about 15, maybe 20 uh, miles north, I believe, of where you are now in in Kiev. Yes. Uh, So obviously you know about that. Uh, The concern level amongst the people you know in Kiev about that, because that's a fairly large force. Well, I mean, um, everybody is um, um, in their cellars. Those those uh, others have volunteered to defend the city. The territorial guards are, are out there, and uh, lately today, lots and lots of volunteers have signed up to defend the city. So, you know, um, yes, it is a lot of people, but Kiev is an extremely large city, and they will resist. But obviously, I'm obviously I'm extremely concerned. What do you think when you see the lines we have, well, of people signing up to, to to go and defend, you know, their country and everything they know and everything they voted for to have, you know, a sovereign nation that isn't part of Russia? Listen, uh, they said it uh, before it started. They, let's let's not forget uh, this country has been at war with Russia for eight years. Uh, so, um, uh, 15,000 people, uh, soldiers already died and, uh, people will not, uh, will not, uh, give in. And they said, we will, we will fight till the last drop of blood of Ukrainian blood. I'm very sorry that, um, we still have a no fly zone. We still don't have a no fly zone. I know help is coming, but it's a bit too little too late, maybe. Uh, but um, I'm, uh, how would I say, extremely, extremely sad that uh, the people here have to go through this. Um, and I'm uh, angry that it's been left on its own to fight this war because it's not only a war in Ukraine. Um, and... Um, and I'm ready. Yeah, you you uh, as antici- much as I can be. You anticipated my question, which is when you say you're you're disappointed that there still is a there isn't a no fly zone yeah. uh, over Ukraine, and 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 you say that that your country has been left uh, to go at it alone. What do right. you think uh, the Western countries, uh, the NATO countries, that is, and the U.S. should be doing that they're not doing? Well, they should have done it. <laughs> I can tell you one thing: had they had they had they done what they should have done eight years ago when the war started and when Crimea was uh, annexed and when they started the, the war in Donbass, we wouldn't be here today, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, the sanctions uh, that are applied now that are very, very severe, I agree, and we're, we're, we're obviously very thankful for that. Tie the noose around, around Putin and, and his, uh, his, uh, uh, his uh, circles. Um, those are important, but they should have, they should have been applied much earlier. It, it, it's a bit too little too late. Maybe. I hope not. 
But I don't understand why there's not a no-fly zone. It's been done so many times before in so many other areas of conflict, and I just feel that, you know, what, is Ukraine second-rate democracy? I mean, it's in Europe. Uh, Is it a second-rate democracy that... that, um, we're left alone. That there are, there are, you know. I just don't understand. I, I re- and 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 uh, I can tell you, Ukrainians are fighting, and they don't have the time to wonder too much because right now everybody's uh, involved in this. But um, um, yes, Ukraine, um, in my view, has been has been abandoned. I'm curious. Uh, many people, as you know, in in your country, have uh, yes. friends and relatives in Russia. Uh, do you and yeah. have you been able to be in contact with any of them or they with well, you? I can tell. Uh, well, only the son. Actually, I'm from Switzerland, by the way. My husband's American. Only actually one kid who uh, studied in Switzerland and uh, whose parents I was friends uh, with because we actually lived in Russia with my husband and my kids for a while. Um, and those were our, 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 our friends. Um, but otherwise, I can tell you, I have plenty of, of uh, let's say, in the East, friends who are, you know, Russian, uh, Russian uh, nationals who, who uh, Kharkiv is a very large university city who, who, who moved there for their studies and stayed there, married uh, Ukrainians, or, 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 and they are mentally 100% Ukrainian patriots. I just spoke to two of them tonight. And, uh, you know, it's not a question of, uh, there, there, yes, there are plenty of Russians, you know, uh, let's say uh, uh, Ukrainians who have roots in Russia, who have friends in, in, or who have friends in Russia. Unfortunately, those, a lot of those ties, even with these friends of mine who are Ukrainians by choice today, those Russians who are Ukraine by choice today, she has severed a lot of their ties with their friends in Russia and or even families, because they've been under such immense propaganda. This, this, this Putin has sold such lies, and this whole war has been started on a lie, uh, that uh, it's very difficult sometimes. So I understand right now that, 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 there's, that there has been, for the first time, this didn't happen in 2014, it's happening now in Russia, that people are protesting, or at least... Uh, Part of the population is is starting to voice its uh, dissent with uh, the uh, with the war on on Ukraine, and I hope it it. Um, uh, but as you know, there's been uh, the, uh, it, since it's not a democracy. People who are protesting are arrested immediately. Um, Does it give you any hope that that's happening, or he's got such an iron grip on that country that? You know, some of these people are, are, they don't get the same news, obviously. It's disinformation. So yeah. he says this is why we're going, and then they end up in, in your country, right. and some of them reportedly are, are saying, why are we here again? I don't under Even the soldiers don't understand. They're going because this guy told no. them to. Well, they don't understand. I mean, some of them, uh, I saw a video today where some of them think that they were kind of still doing these quote-unquote exercises. Um um, again, they have been fed this lie for 22 years now, and actually for 300 years, there's been uh, this kind of uh, uh, um, um, inability of Russia to accept Ukraine as a country. And, um, and uh, yes, uh, uh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if 
actually public opinion doesn't really matter to Putin. They're not even picking up their dead in Ukraine. They're not even picking up their own dead soldiers in Ukraine. Can you believe that? It's, there's, it's, there's a Ukrainian network that has started to try to communicate with, with, with the, the, the parents and, and, and the relatives of, of these people. <laughs> of these Russian shoulders that are, that are left on dead on the side of the sidewalk. They're not even picking up their own dead. You mentioned that you're, you're Swiss, your husband's American, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. How long have you been in Ukraine, and why did you elect then to, to stay? You could have left. Uh, well, we've been off and on. Uh, we've been in Ukraine off and on since uh, 92, but uh, we've been permanent residents with my husband. Uh, our kids are adults now. Uh, about permanent residence with my husband since 2009. We came here first. For, my husband was at the head of a, an American multinational and then uh, for 20 years and, and eventually went out on his own um, for business. And I also run a foundation and and, um, and uh, I'm part of a medical group. So uh, why did we stay? Well, I, I guess initially... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is where we build a life. Um, um, and frankly, none of us really believed uh, that this would happen. And uh, I'm committed to leave if my friends ask me to take our goddaughters, who are two girls of 10 years old who are twins. Uh, my husband is in the west of the country. He was out there for business. And uh, uh, for now, we're... And now... Uh, Leaving is not an option, actually. You were talking about the girls this morning and how you tried to give right them a now, little yeah. piece of, of yeah. normalcy and you had a little girls' night the other night. But then even in that... Not a girls' night. Or, uh, we girls can't after, have girls' night. Yeah. We have curfew. But afternoon. We have little, after, afternoon. Afternoon party. Right, before, before the right. 5 o'clock. But yeah. you said even they know Then they were talking about the enemy at 10 years old yeah. and how terrible it is that they know what that means right now yeah. at that age. They shouldn't have to deal with yeah. that. No, they shouldn't, but they are. And, and there are millions of kids today that are learning about that word and that, are, that, are, that unfortunately are, are going through tremendous, tremendous, no kid in the world should be going through this. No kid in the world. And, and as I said uh, this morning, and they're quote unquote um, lucky that there's a basement in their house because lots of kids don't have basements in their buildings and end up in metro shoots or in bomb shelters. Um, a lot of kids are exposed. Um, uh, kids have lost their parents uh, in the war. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a tragedy. So my job here at least is, is to relieve the parents a bit. Uh, we just discussed today that we uh, that uh, tomorrow I'm going to have the girls read me. Uh, they're studying nature uh, in English. Um, they're fluent in English. The dad's Canadian. But they take it at school as well. And so tomorrow uh, we decide we need to put a bit of a routine because, of course, the school is no longer functioning. So that's what I'll do tomorrow with them is, is um, have them read me their, their book and on, in English on nature and ask them questions and just trying to bring a bit of, you know, as much as we can normalcy. Right. Patricia, try and get some sleep and uh, stay safe and uh, hope we can provide that for the kids as you go into tomorrow. Patricia there um, joining us again from Kiev. Thanks. 
And uh, we're back with more on uh, what is happening in the Ukraine uh, crisis, the invasion by Russia, and also uh, this this huge humanitarian crisis with uh, uh, tens of thousands, perhaps more than that, uh, people from Ukraine uh, pouring across the borders into places like uh, neighboring Poland. Which is where we find CBS News correspondent Steve Futterman. Steve, thanks for being with us. Um, paint that picture. What have you been seeing since you've arrived? Well, I've, I'm right now at a small encampment. This is around five, five miles from the actual border, and many of the Ukrainian refugees are coming to this area where I'm at right now. They're taken by bus, and there's uh, a mini encampment here. Polish ordinary citizens have come here with blankets, with food, with toys for children. This is like the first stop for many of these refugees. They get off the bus, they see people from Poland who they don't know carrying signs indicating, uh, I have room for a family of three. I have room for a family of four. Do you need a ride to Warsaw? Do you need a ride to another city here? And it's quite moving to see how the Polish people are reacting at this small encampment. I wouldn't call it a refugee camp, but it's like a first stop where you can get supplies and sort of try to get a sense of what's going on and try to begin this new part of your life. Now, of course, as you know, uh, Steve, there's also a bit of controversy about all this because uh, countries such as Poland, uh, where you are, and and, uh, Hungary, uh, who are taking in these folks from uh, Ukraine, were not as welcoming to people who were coming in from places like Syria. Well, listen, you can connect everything you want. Yes, we do know that... uh, Uh, Some of these countries have been more welcoming to people who maybe are next door, who they feel more of a kinship with than other other areas. But, I mean, this is something that can be discussed in the future. And it's an interesting topic, but I think right now with the issue facing them, with all these refugees coming across, I don't think that's going through the minds of many of the people right now. But that's certainly an issue, that countries that are now saying, please come to my country, Yes, they've not been as welcoming to other people in the past. That's absolutely true. Pretty steady stream still. We saw kind of the first round of evacuations, but then even the images we get at train stations and things is still crowds and crowds of people trying to leave. And again, we're talking women and children because the men, if you're over 18, you've been told to stay. Exactly. Uh, I have not seen. I see occasionally a very elderly man or or someone who may be disabled, has some uh, physical difficulties, but except for that, uh, these are all women and children. I just spoke to a 16-year-old girl. She began to cry when she was talking to me because she was so moved. Her five-year-old sister was there. She said to me, my sister has no idea what's going on. They gave the sister some toys. So, like I said, this is quite a moving scene here at this location. I'd say two or three miles from the border. They've come across. These are the people who've been able to get across. They're they're thankful for that. But listen, they're facing a very difficult time. They bring with them some suitcases, a roller bag. They don't have much with them. Uh, some people bring their pets. But this is a uh, a new and almost certainly a very difficult uh, journey they're about to begin. Is it mostly women and children? Oh, yes. I see very few men. Again, if I see a man, it's someone who's very elderly, or I've seen a couple people who are uh, uh, just have some physical difficulties. They have come across. But uh, uh, men who are fit and able, I've not seen anyone like that on these buses. How many people have 
have we had and seen estimates of what these other countries on these borders are are ready and able to accept? You know, this is a this is something that it's going to be very difficult for some of these countries. I mean, they're going to be asked to handle tens of thousands of people. I saw one report, and you might know more about this than I do, but I think today someone was saying uh, 60, 70,000 people may have crossed the border here in Poland. That's not an official estimate, but I heard someone suggest that that's the number today alone. Uh, so they're getting large numbers of people coming, and not just to Poland, they're going to other countries, but Poland being so obviously on the border here and such a large border with Ukraine, you're seeing Poland get, I would say, the, the largest number of the refugees right now. CBS News correspondent Steve Futterman uh, there in Poland. Steve, thanks for talking to us. Tim Alovinoff is an economics professor in Kiev. Professor, uh, it's a little after, I think, 1130 or so at night there. So uh, what is happening from your vantage point? And since we talked, uh, what was it, on Friday? Yes, uh, thank you for having me again. Yeah. Um, I am uh, more or less out of the harm's way, uh, personally. I'm a little bit uh, in the suburbs, uh, sufficiently away from Kiev, uh, but uh, around that area. But I did, too, have to get into the um, basement um, or shelter uh, just about an hour ago or two hours ago because there was an air raid siren and uh, a warning and we were all forced to go. Um, things got worse today. Uh, Russia used, um, and that's, uh, um, and the videos are, I think, in the Western news already, as verified. Um, Russia used gra- grad systems. This is a cluster bomb uh, uh, rocket systems on residential areas in Kharkiv. Uh, and the uh, air raids destroyed three buildings. One is five-floor building and, uh, sorry, two five-floor buildings and one three-floor buildings um, in suburbs of Kiev. That means that, you know, uh, now it's escalating and it's uh, taking it towards, you know, residential areas. Uh, So things are tough, uh, but Ukrainians are mobilized. It's uh, amazing to see the spirit of people. And uh, it reminds me of 2014 uh, when, you know, I remember being on Maidan, but I, I didn't, I wasn't, it was the revolution. Maidan is the center square in Ukraine where um, I wasn't there during that day, but uh, police eventually started shooting, secret police and riot police started actually shooting people and killed about 100 people in 2014. And after that, Russia annexed Crimea and uh, backed up the separatists in the East. And, you know, at that point, uh, it really looked dark. But then there was the sunrise eventually um, in months or in days after that. So I have the same feeling and Ukrainians have the same feeling. We've been there. It's just much, much larger scale. It's a really dark place there. Russia has gotten itself in some, you know, the darkest ever probably. Um, it's throwing its people. It's amazing. You know, if you see this prisoners of war um, interviews, they don't know what they are doing. You know, I, I have a, a friend who has a family member. And in north uh, of Ukraine, some of the guys, you know, a battalion was simply shot by Ukrainian military. And those who were prisoners, they thought they were in Crimea. They were not even told by their commanders that they crossed Ukraine. So they were not, you know, they were just walking around, you know, uh, setting up perimeter as if they were in Crimea controlled by Russia. 
and they were in Ukrainian territory. Um, so, you know, it's amazing. I don't know what's going on in the commander's uh, minds um, in, in Russia, but it is really scary for everyone in Ukraine. Uh, but um, I'm pretty sure that we're going to fight uh, uh, and hopefully we will win. I personally believe that. Um, not everyone believes that, but Ukraine has proven itself once and again that it has been underestimated. We were talking with our our last guest that was also joining us from Kiev a, a few minutes ago, and, and she was saying, look, this is a you're kind of torn because you were talking and the world has seen it and how inspiring for, for people to, to line up and fight for their democracy. But also, can you not separate almost feeling alone because it is kind of you guys versus russia and then nato and, and other countries pledging support but you know we're not talking boots on the ground here uh yes uh, we are you know i can put it diplomatically we are frustrated with this that's that's diplomatic statement um i think um the west would have to implement or empower ukraine or some combination of countries to implement no fly zone over uh, over Ukraine so that the Russians can bomb. And the moment they cannot bomb us, we're going to win because our ground combat uh, actually turns out, I don't know why, but it turns out that uh, Ukrainian military is quite professional and uh, resilient. Maybe, uh, maybe just because it's our land. Well, of course, I mean, the reason I, I, I suspect that there's no, uh, not a fly, a no fly zone uh, and and of course, as you know, the reason why why NATO and the U.S. are not putting boots in the ground there is because of the uh, very real concern that it would inevitably lead to an actual conflict between uh, NATO countries, the U.S. and Russia itself. And that would be potentially uh, I mean, it's catastrophic enough what's happening in your country. But if you expand it, uh, you're talking about uh, a situation that is beyond many people's imaginations right now. You're correct. Absolutely correct. And, you know, if you look at Putin's behavior, it's not just one episode. And not only in Ukraine. You know, there was 2014 Crimea. There was in, um, there was 2008 Georgia. There was uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, there were assassinations using even plutonium, you know, radioactive materials in uh, London of... Uh, uh, you know, opposition or dissidents. Uh, Navalny is in prison. Nemtsov was killed. Um, these are all prominent uh, opposition uh, leaders. Um, uh, there is um, terror and harassment of opposition in Belarus, and de facto Belarus now lost its sovereignty because the sorties that Russia Air Force is implementing from Belarus. Then there was Kazakhstan and uh, military deployment in Kazakhstan to suppress protests. So it's a pattern. And that pattern is just escalating every time to just the next degree. And if it's not stopped now, I'm pretty sure in 10 years or so, we'll find, or maybe even earlier, we'll find ourselves in the Baltics with, the, with Putin there, emboldened even more. And then the degree of the problem would be even bigger. So, so I think, you know, had we stopped them as the international community in 2008 in Georgia, or had we stopped them maybe even earlier, then we wouldn't have seen the situation. But every time we in the West or internationally, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Ukraine, but I spend half of my time or used to spend half of my time in the U.S. teaching. So, you know, we apply some kind of rational framework. And every time they have defied it, 
And now we keep searching for some rational in their behavior, but the empirical evidence is that they're just doing what we think they couldn't do because it's unimaginable and they do it nonetheless. Tim Milivanov, economics professor there in Kyiv. Tim, thanks for talking to us again. Uh, We'll keep up with you. Thanks so much. Russian troops have encountered much stiffer resistance than they apparently expected from Ukraine, and Russian President Vladimir Putin has increased his nation's nuclear alert status. Also, this uh, larger convoy of the Russian troops uh, not too far from Kyiv. Mike Lyons, military analyst, retired Army major. Mike, thanks for being here with us. So first off, to where we have been, the resistance. Uh, again, the Russians not taking it as much as they thought, at least early on, which I guess might have prompted what we're seeing now, which is they've sent in a whole bunch more in terms of manpower. Yeah, the Russians have clearly uh, underperformed, did not do any kind of shock and awe, did not uh, coordinate maneuvers between strategic weapons and, and troops on the ground, really failed in all different levels of, of military operations. I think they thought they were just going to roll right in without any resistance, be treated as liberators, and they've clearly been treated as invaders. And so um, they're, they're definitely bogged down right now. Their communication lines have been broken. They haven't crossed certain rivers. They're advancing along seven axes of approach that, uh, that frankly, they'd be lucky to try to consolidate down to three. Um, and Ukraine military and civilians win by not losing. So they've held out a lot longer than a lot of people expected, for sure. But that, that, that of course, is the capital, which is important in Kiev. But uh, it's my understanding from what I've been reading all morning that they've been a bit more successful in the southern part of the country, especially in the area of Odessa. And it's not even clear at this point who actually controls those areas, the Russians or the Ukrainians. If they do manage to take control of the southern areas near, the, near of course, the access to the, uh, to the sea, mm-hmm. that would be significant for them, would it not? Well, it would be. They do have that area. They had, that's where, where Crimea is. It's still a long way from Kiev. Kiev is really the center of gravity and the emotional center where the president is. Um, well, so that would be bad, no question about it. Um, the question there is if they control that area, can they march then up to Kiev? It would take them more than a few days. It's a big country. They'd have to, again, lengthen supply lines that they just don't seem they have the competence to do because as they go back to try to refuel, they, they seem to be attacked. But no, I can't, I can't dismiss the fact that uh, taking Odessa is important for the Russian military in their operation. This latest convoy game plan could be what, just encircle Kiev or try I, and go in? I mean, can you fight street? to street if everybody's got a gun? Because apparently they do. They've given out tens of thousands of guns. Yeah, I, I don't see them winning anything in the city. That it would be a, literally a siege-type operation. You go back to World War II and Stalingrad and fighting block to block and building to building. Um, and, and the tanks, we've got some technology there. We're getting more technology there. Uh, they could surround it, and, and, and it would be just literally all about choking out the civilians that live there. But it seems that a lot of people have not left. All the men are, are ready to fight, and they've got great technology. The javelins have been proving effective. Just the fact that we've lost, they've lost almost 200 tanks to me is amazing. It takes a lot of guts to sit there and pull the trigger on a tank, especially with that, that kind of weapon system. So let's say uh, Vladimir Putin is put in a position where he needs to retreat. What's a face-saving way? Is there one for him to do that? Well, I think face saving is G minus zero. It's what happens when this whole thing started. You know, let's say Russia keeps Crimea full time, and maybe they assume some areas in the Donbass region that they took over that they try to annex, and maybe that boundary gets redrawn. However, um, NATO might uh, promise not to bring Ukraine in, and maybe NATO instead joins the EU. The bottom line is we need to get the shooting stopped, so to speak. But then let's have the West rebuild Ukraine, and let's kind of see what happens. I think you'd have a 
a lot of uh, really smart Ukraine engineers uh, be on the kind of the good side. And then as, as time goes on, maybe maybe the, the future changes. But for right now, the most important thing is to get the shooting to stop. Your view of the uh, nuclear readiness in Russia being heightened, is this, you know, he's off his rocker again, he's talking nukes, or is this things weren't going well, so now I'm going to do this over here to distract everybody and get everybody riled up again? I think the second, I think that's typical doctrine for the Russians to claim they'll do that, but that would escalate very quickly, especially if they did anything over uh, a NATO country would trigger Article 5. So, And, and he gets into a, a, a no-win situation there as um, submarines and other places that we can deliver a nuclear weapon from. I think um, I think he's going to, you know, that, that was what we expected on some level, but I've got to keep a close eye on that for sure. Um, and the fact that he has that capability is still very concerning. No, that's why we have to give him that off-ramp. That's, the, that's why we have to give him the off-ramp, though, because he's got 7,000 nuclear weapons, and if he is crazy, let's say, we've got to give him some face-saving measure. We had two people on just before in the show uh, from uh, Ukraine, from the Kiev area, both of whom uh, expressed uh, really deep disappointment that a no-fly zone has not been established mm-hmm. by uh, other Western nations over Ukraine. Uh, but clearly, that would set up a situation that could lead to very dire, uh, unpredictable consequences, right? Correct. The no-fly zone is an act of war on our part. Now, he's, uh, you can argue that Vladimir Putin says that the United States has already gone to war with Russia because of the economic sanctions and the like, but it's an active kinetic uh, act of war, as we would have to take out air defense platforms. One of the miracles of the past four days and five days is the Ukraine Air Force is still flying, and they still have anti-missile defenses. That, that, that to me, is something that should have been taken out the first day by Russia, one of their strategic failures of this whole campaign. Uh, and if we went and tried to do that, we would take out all of Russia's capability to defend in the air. So it, we would be firing up Russian targets. That would be American and NATO on Russia. That would be an act of war. That would trigger everything. Mike Lyons, military analyst, a retired Army major. Mike, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. Well, that's the news we've been telling you about today. California ready to let the school kids show their faces, lifting the statewide mask mandate in schools in a couple of weeks, so mid-March. We've got a parent. We've got a teacher. We start with Glenn Sachs, a teacher at Monroe High, LAUSD. Uh, Glenn, so what do you think about the um, state recommendation? They're saying you can lose the masks, but we still strongly recommend them. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If they're strongly recommended, then why are we lifting the mask mandate? I mean, if it's something that we should be doing, let's do it. If not, that's a different story. How do you think your fellow teachers will react? Well, you know, I was on your uh, show a couple of weeks ago and you know, about this. And afterwards, I had several classes and I asked them in as neutral, absolutely neutral a voice as possible. I asked the students what they thought of this. And really, the result was overwhelming. I mean, the students thought, gee, you know, why? You know, we just got over Omicron. The masks are not a big deal. Why don't we just keep them on? Why don't we just be on the safe side? What's the rush to go and take this risk? Um, and, you know, it's funny because even now, now the, the masks are no longer required outside. It's lunchtime at my school. I guarantee you that if you walk out, you'll still see uh, except for the kids who are eating, most of the kids still have their masks on. In the morning, you're outside, you still see the kids, most of them have their masks on. They're not that big of a deal. I don't hear teachers complaining about them. I don't hear teachers telling me that they're having to nag students or that it's a big 
problem. What is the current agreement between LAUSD and the, the teachers union about masks? Does that run through the end of the year anyway? I'm not sure uh, how, how long it runs, but they can't. I, I know that the district cannot lift the man, mask mandate for indoors in schools without the union signing off. And as far as I know, I'm not speaking for the union, but as far as I know, you know, uh, President Cecily Meyer-Cruz and others, as far as I know, uh, you know, they believe that we should be cautious, that we should keep the masks, at least for a little while longer, that we should keep the masks. In the end, though, does it matter uh, in the sense that uh, people will just end up, and perhaps that's the, the political motivation for doing this, that in the end people are going to do what they want to do, and those who, as you mentioned, students and teachers who are currently wearing masks, if they choose, they'll continue to wear them for however long, uh, but those who don't uh, will end up not. If they lift the mask mandates, that's probably what will happen. There'll probably be some students, maybe a lot of students, maybe most students, who will keep wearing them. But, uh, you know, it's, it's safer if everybody is wearing them. And, and you know, again, I, ju- I just don't see what the rush is. Okay, that's Glenn Sachs. Thank you. Who's a teacher at Monroe High School? Now we go to Jose Cornejo, who is the father of two kids in the LA school district. Jose, uh, well, it looks like that time is about to come uh, for your kids to dump their masks in the classroom. Are you uh, yay or nay on that? You know, I have mixed feelings about it. The reality is that you're concerned about your child's health and safety. We've been told that the science has told us that it was helpful. And uh, so I have mixed feelings about it. I have concerns, whether it's uh, too quick, too soon. But on the other hand, you know, if you're vaccinated and you've got all these, uh, you've had, we don't have a variant that's coming through at a very high rate, you know, the comfort of kids as well. I, I think we all would like to get back to normalcy. I think we would all like to get back to being able to walk in places without having to wear a mask. But I think we also have a lot of fears about what does it mean. And, you know, I'll tell you, as a parent, one of the good things about the mask and the uh, sanitation is we had a lot less colds going around, <laughs> a lot less fluids going around. So we dealt with a lot less uh, snotty noses during the last year yeah. because of the sanitation uh, uh, protocols we had in place. And I think so people I can, can see, yeah, I think people can see, you know, the both sides of the mixed feelings because we've been doing that for, for, for months and months and months with this now. But I'm, I'm curious as to your feelings if LAUSD holds on, if, if the teachers union does say, you know what, no, keep the kids masked up. What if we get to a place where it's just your kids, just at their schools and Orange County and everybody else, they don't wear them? You know, that's, that's at the end of the day, it's a decision that has to be made based on science. And uh, to me, if, if there's enough proof at this point that we don't need them, then I don't know that the mandate needs to stay. I think that we should be looking at the health and safety of all. Um, we do a lot of things in order to protect uh, people who are more um, vulnerable to illnesses. I'll give you the best example is we don't allow peanuts on airplanes anymore because of peanut allergies. So I don't know that I'm terribly opposed to the idea of the mask. I am concerned that kids that need to wear that because their health at risk is higher at risk may get more uh, pressure uh, put on them or more um, teasing, if you will, because their health conditions require that to be more. But I, I'm not I'm not sold on the idea of the mask or not the mask at this point. I just 
I find it challenging that we do this public policy discussions on political will versus uh, the science behind it all. Jose Cornejo there, father of a couple kids in the L.A. school district. Jose, thanks. There has been widespread anger about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and a lot of Americans have decided to dump their vodka. Problem? Most of that vodka isn't actually from Russia. Bump Williams, founder and president of BWC Consulting, works for hundreds of uh, U.S. alcohol distributors and realtors who works with them. Brandon Powers, managing partner at Evil Pie and the Golden Tiki in Las Vegas. They're doing something out there we're going to tell you about in just a minute. Uh, but Bump, let's start with you. Uh, I'm going to name some vodkas, and you're going to tell me, hopefully, if they're Russian or, or not, okay? Um, Smirnoff. No. Okay, I think we know Ciroc and Tito's are not, uh, so absolute. Nope. Svedka. Nope. What about Stoli? Nope. Okay, these are all things that people think are Russian, but we've just been <laughs> under the impression the whole time. <laughs> You're right. Everybody thinks they're Russian. And you think about a lot of the American vodkas or non-Russian vodkas. They made their claim by trying to capture that Russian that Russian namesake. And it's kind of coming back to haunt a lot of them now. Well, well, let's take it from the other way. Uh, is there any vodka that you can buy in this country now that actually is Russian? Oh, sure. There's a whole laundry list of them. Um, most of them have been taken off the shelves, and a lot of smart retailers on-premise and off-premise have made a statement, a really bold statement, using social media, using in-store point of sale, that this spot is now reserved for our local craft vodka or an American vodka or a French vodka. Absolutely. But there's a laundry list of of true Russian produced vodkas that were sold up in the United States until last week. How much of the proportion did, did they make up until last week? So that's a million. That's a great question. And the answer is Tito's probably spills more and filling up their <laughs> 750s or 1.5s and then these big Russian, uh, you know, legitimate Russian vodkas uh, sold in the United States. Okay, so Brandon, uh, your bars, right, uh, you've been taking sort of an activist stand of sorts, so uh, vodka dumping, are you dumping the vodka that it turns out really isn't Russian anyway? No, so we started out, we had a Russian standard vodka, which is uh, made in Russia. And uh, we had uh, about eight bottles of it, and we had customers purchase it for $300 for the ability to pour it out. And all that money, 100% of those proceeds went uh, to, uh, we were working with the ICRC, um, but we're also now uh, deciding to donate to the World Central Kitchen by our friend Chef Jose Andres. And um, so 100% of those proceeds go directly to help the humanitarian efforts within the Ukraine. And, and we did start noticing that. As soon as we did that, other people, we were hoping to be a catalyst, uh, being one of the first to, to kind of spark this. And um, everyone in the last week or last few days has become Russian vodka experts. <laughs> and uh, they're letting us know. Um, but no, ours is Russian standard vodka made in Russia. And... Um, and, and we, we were happily pouring it out in the gutters. People paid to pour it out in the toilets. And that money that those people paid 
went directly to humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine, like I said. Did, did people jump at the chance to, to pay the extra money to oh, do it? Oh, man, we had, we had on Saturday morning, we had line um, just pretty much almost down the block. And lots of Ukrainians. And I, I want to make a point here, too, that um, this, th- what we're doing is not against any way against the, um, the Russian people. It's 100% targeted towards Putin. And, um, and everything that we're doing is we're here to help people wherever, it, whenever there's anything that goes on in our city or around the world, we always try our best with our little pizza shop to do what we can. And um, so this, these donations are going directly into the hands of the humanitarian efforts within the Ukraine. Bump Williams, do you remember anything kind of like this before? Wow. I have to think back in time, at least in the beverage world, I can't think of anything that was quite this bad, other than the positive side where that movie Sideways was produced and released and Pinot Noirs just took off through the roof. No one really knew what a (laughs) Pinot Noir was, but wow, after that, people couldn't get enough of them. But any kind of negative um, connotations to the beverage alcohol industry? No, maybe 2008 when Anheuser-Busch was sold to a Brazilian company out of Belgium. Those kinds of things is or what I think about. Is it just that they're so like intertwined that it happened that fast? Cause you just think, okay, Russia, you think vodka, they're, they go together right in our heads. Nope. Oh, bump. Nope. Oh, bump's going. Brandon, you're still there. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, sorry. All right. So, so, so let me ask you this. Uh, so we've been talking about Russian vodka. Uh, I presume, and uh, maybe I'm wrong. Doesn't Ukraine make vodka? Can we buy some? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually, um, and, and, and I, we actually have, uh, we're selling uh, Nimrov vodka out of the Ukraine, and they're a pretty large company. And we've so far have gone through 11 cases at Evil Pie. Within like I think it's been 48 hours. It's it's all a blur right now, um, but we've gone through 11 cases of shots so far, and and people are still coming in to buy them. They're five dollars a shot. It's a honey pepper uh, vodka that's actually amazing, and um, and it's 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 just the outpouring, no pun intended, of support. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> right, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time. So very quickly, last word to you, uh, Bump Williams. Are you are we because we're talking about now vodka made in Ukraine as opposed to Russia? Are, are you yep. uh, seeing a, a spike in uh, sales of Ukrainian made vodka? So not yet, but but like Brendan's point, I expect to see a huge three things. I expect to see a huge increase in Ukrainian produced vodka. Absolutely. But it's too, too early to read that right now. Number two is I expect a really strong social media message from brands like Smirnoff or Stoli that are being mislabeled as being Russian produced and having those get back on the shelves and in people's hands again. And then the third thing is I'm really expecting a huge emotional outpouring of American-made vodkas like a Tito's or like a Deep Eddy who come out and say, we're made in America, you know, support us. If you're going to have a Moscow mule or you're going to have a shot of vodka, put it, put in a Tito shot. That's what I expect to see. Bump Williams, founder and president of BWC Consulting, uh, Brandon Powers over at Evil Pie and the Golden Tiki in Vegas. Thanks, guys. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.